you guys look good today. Especially these two right here, Josh and Miriam. Two of our young adults got engaged this week, so it's exciting. So fun. So many good life things happening in our church. I just, it's the best. So if you're looking for seats, uh, Steve's right here kind of doing that. Do you need a Calvary Crunch? Are we good? Let's do it. Calvary Crunch. If you got a space, uh, leave room on the ends so that people can get in and not climb over. So Calvary Crunch is what we call that. So um, we're good. I think we're good. There's a couple people back there, but excellent. Well, I think that summer has officially begun, right? Uh, I was at the beach yesterday. Our uh, Youth were there doing the summer beach bash. A lot of things to enjoy in this beautiful season of summer. Kids are out of school now. I don't know if that's a blessing or not, but um, <laughs> but the beach is warming up and the barbecues are in full force. And I'm planning on having a really fun summer. I don't know about you guys, but really looking forward to that series on Wednesday nights. I just love to see our whole church coming out for that. Uh, we believe it's... Um, the, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely crucial to know and to understand, to live in, um, to walk with Jesus. And so we really encourage you to join us for that. And again, if you're getting baptized and say you already had plans for July 3rd and that's totally throwing things off, come talk to us. We want to definitely make sure that you guys are, um, that that change isn't affecting things. So uh, but with that, let's open up our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. What I'm going to do this morning is read our portion of Scripture for today, which begins at verse 12 and is going to go down to the end of the chapter. So we're drawing near to the end of this great epistle we've been studying. But before I read the section that we're going to look at today, uh, I want to exhort us with a word that Peter uses to lead off this section. And look at verse 12. Look at that first word. At least in my Bible, it's the first word there. It says, beloved. Beloved. And that is what we are. And do, do we know this to be true? That we are loved by our creator. That the God of heaven and earth, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the one who has a thousand names and more, he has poured out his love into our hearts that we may know him and be known by him. And you could say that we are those who have been affected by his affections. God loves us so deeply that it changes us. And here's the truth, that God loves each one of you just the way that you are. However, he loves you too much to leave you that way. And this is what we've been seeing so far in the book of 1 Peter, is that God is always changing us. There is always more for us to experience of God's love. There is never a stagnant moment in the love of God. He's always doing something. And, and so with that kind of love in mind that we're seeing from our creator, let's read this portion of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 12. It says this, Beloved, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your living and powerful word. And God, we thank you that your spirit is here to minister these truths to us, to point us to Jesus. And as we consider today, Jesus, how you suffered, and then how we as your followers will suffer. God, I pray that you would instruct us today from your word, from your spirit, in the life of this body of believers that you've gathered, that we learn how to suffer well for your name's sake. Jesus, we thank you that you are worthy. You have the name that is above all names, and uh, we follow you, Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So look again with me at verse 12. We read this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter has been focusing a pretty good deal of his attention uh, on how believers are to think about things. Uh, We've been learning about the proper mindset that elect exiles are to have, how we're to think about things. And last week we saw that we are to be a heavenly-minded people, we are to be others-minded, and we are to be sober-minded. And what we could really do is just reduce that all down and say this, is that we're to think like Jesus. We're to have a Christ-like mindset. To follow Jesus in many ways is to think like Jesus. You know, WWJT. We gotta make those bracelets. So what does this mean if we're gonna think like Jesus? Well, it means that I can think, for instance, the same way that Jesus thinks about caring for children. Didn't Jesus care for children? I can think the same way that Jesus thought about helping people who are in need. Uh, I can think the way Jesus thought when it comes to being kind, being patient, being humble. We could go on about all the ways that we can think the same way that Jesus did. But listen, there is a significant portion of the life and ministry of Jesus that we have to think about. We must consider how Jesus suffered and how Jesus thought about suffering. Amen? And if we're to have the same mindset that Jesus had, then this means that we need to think a certain way about suffering. Do you remember how this chapter started, verse one of chapter four said, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. 
So this is what Peter is touching on again in this section. He's reminding us that as we think about suffering, we, we need to consider where do our minds go in those difficult seasons of life? You know, when it's not sunny and a bright summer, but it's a cold and dark winter, you know, metaphorically speaking. When we're sick, when we're in need, when we are persecuted for how we're living out our faith as children of God in this ungodly world. Peter says, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. And look, Peter didn't say if a fiery trial comes. He said when a fiery trial comes. It's going to come. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so call it what you will. You can call it a trial, testing, tribulation, hardship, difficulty, storms, attacks, or just call it plain old suffering. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So it begs us to ask this question. Are we prepared to endure suffering with faith? You know, I entered last summer expecting uh, my baby boy, my third child, Knox, to be born. And last summer, I entered one of the hardest trials of my life. When in the first week of my son's life, he almost died because he couldn't get breath into his lungs. That's a certain kind of trial, probably of the worst kind, but there are many trials. Peter started this book by saying, there are many colors of trials, some more difficult than others, but none of them enjoyable. And as I look out on you guys, I, I, I know that many of you have suffered, and I don't know all the stories, but I know in a room this uh, size with this many people, you've been through stuff. You know what it's like to suffer. And whether it's just suffering because we live in a fallen world that is broken or you've suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ, whatever it is, I, I know that I'm talking to a people who at least in some measure have suffered for the name of Jesus. And look, Peter is writing to people who had already experienced various kinds of suffering in their life. Uh, right around this time, in the mid-60s AD, when Peter wrote this letter, Caesar, Caesar Nero was in charge there in Rome. And, you know, it's in history that he would set Christians on fire to light up his gardens at his palace. He also, at one point, blamed Christians for this destructive fire that ripped through Rome leaving just a wake of destruction in its path. And it was actually Nero who started that fire as a way to clear out some space so that he could build himself a new palace. So Peter's saying, don't be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And th that, that word fiery trial, that, that might have hit in a unique way for the first century believers. You know, if you know anything of church history as well, you know that this verse has to have been a source of strength and comfort for the martyrs in the history of the church who have been burned alive 
for their belief in the real Jesus. And so although you and I may not ever be touched, we may or may not, but we may never be touched by a literal fire for our faith. But, but look, haven't you taken a few fire darts from the evil one? I know that you have seen the frailties of human life. That as you've looked at the world, you've wondered how it could be so broken. But I hope, beloved, believers in Jesus Christ, that it's not a new concept to you. That we will be tried and tested in our faith. That we must not be surprised, beloved, when the refining fire comes upon us. And that word surprised was used earlier in this chapter. It was used in referring to how people that you used to run with, you know, you used to kind of live with and uh, do the old things that you used to do, that they are surprised that now you don't join them in the same flood of sins anymore. And Peter is saying, let them be surprised at your new life in Jesus Christ, but you don't be surprised when they malign you and they mistreat you for the way that you're going to live for Jesus. Don't be surprised by that. And and don't you appreciate this, that Peter says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Because I think we've all been there. We've all been in that place where we're going through a trial or for a testing of our faith and we've said something like, what is this, right? Why is this happening to me? Why did I have this come upon me? Have you ever been surprised by the heat of a trial? Have you ever asked, what is this testing all about? Not you, just me. We've all been there. We've all been surprised when something happens. (laughs) I wasn't quite surprised when I went out to the car today and it wouldn't start. (laughs) And and I was talking to Robin this morning and it just like, you know, coming into this message, it's like, man, these little light trials and everything that maybe test my patience, uh, why would I be surprised by something like that? Or or for instance, over the, the last week, just kind of, feeling days where, that were just a little harder, maybe a little more discouraging, and being like, why am I surprised that after coming off of two powerful weeks of messages that's talking about how we as a church are to pursue holiness, that I'm not gonna get some sort of fiery darts from the evil one? Am I really surprised that when I'm pursuing holiness that there's gonna be pushback? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial, whatever kind or color it takes on. See, Peter knew himself what it was like to go through a trial. He was, he was warming his hands by the fire during his great test of faith, of which he utterly failed. Do you remember what happened when that little girl came up to him and said, aren't you a follower of Jesus? No, no, I don't know the man, right? He, he cursed, he's like, I do not know this person, Jesus, that you are talking about, And yet Peter is now near the end of his life. He has gone through the trials. His faith has been tested on a number of occasions as the Lord would see fit. And he has been refined. 
and the genuineness of his faith is known. And that, my friends, is much more precious than gold that perishes, which is also tested as through fire. And then I thought about this. There's this phrase in the book of Hebrews, or this verse, uh, Hebrews 5.8. It said this about Jesus. It said, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Look, if Jesus went through the school of suffering, then why do I always think that I should be on summer vacation when it comes to suffering? And, and Jesus... I read this by Charles Spurgeon. He said, God has had only one son without sin, but he's never had a son without a trial. We all go through the testing. It's not if, it is when. So Jesus, if Jesus, the son of God, went through fiery trials that refined him, but, but what did Jesus need to be refined from? He had no sin, and yet, if the sinless Son of God was tested through suffering, why should I think that it's a strange thing that I would go through a trial that tests me and refines me? So, this is what we can think about all of this. Trials are not strange, beloved, because we live in a sin-stricken world where we must be refined by a holy God who loves us enough to bring us into his presence. Secondly, trials are not strange because Jesus endured trials. And remember, a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus suffered. If Jesus was hated by the world, why would we think that it's a strange thing that we would too? And lastly, trials are not strange because of what we discover on the other end of them, which we're going to see now in verse 13. But rejoice. Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So if verse 12 tells us that we can expect suffering, then verse 13 tells us how to respond when suffering comes. It says, but rejoice. Now, is that a natural response to suffering? Or, or even when I'm preaching a message on suffering, are we just all in here like, woo, hallelujah, praise God. No, it's like everybody's just like, whoa, this is heavy, right? So in suffering, he says, but rejoice? This has to be a supernatural response. This can only be possible insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That's what he says. How do we share in Christ's sufferings? Or as in Paul's language, what does it look like to have fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus? And I want to remind you first of something. I want to remind you that our suffering will never do anything to atone for our own sin. Jesus died once and for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Your suffering does nothing to remove any of your sin or any sins around you. Jesus' suffering did something for us spiritually that no human suffering will ever be able to accomplish. Jesus removed our sins at the cross. However, now as his forgiven people, we have received his body and blood sacrifice by faith and we get to partake. 
You know, to partake of something means to take it into you. Like, I'm going to later today maybe partake of a cheeseburger. It's going to go inside me and I'm going to enjoy it. Right? And it's to partake of the sufferings of Jesus means that his suffering becomes at the very core part of who we are. Paul said at the end of Galatians, he said, I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. You know, Paul suffered, Peter suffered, John suffered, every apostle of Jesus suffered for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his gospel. They partook of the sufferings for his names and they were glad to do it. We read this crazy Uh, not crazy, just supernatural response in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, 41, when the the rulers brought in the apostles because they had been telling them not to speak about Jesus anymore, and it says this, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's not normal. (laughs) That's not natural. That requires a spiritual power at work in the follower of Jesus. There is a power, and we're gonna get to what that power is in verse 14 in just a moment, but I just wanna say one more thing about this, that none of this, all of this talk about suffering for Jesus, it would not be worth it if Jesus wasn't worthy. It would not be worth it if Jesus wasn't worth it. You know how difficult it can be to live the Christian life, amen? But Jesus is worthy of our lives, no matter how difficult it might be. So there would be nothing worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus if there wasn't a promise of partaking, if we didn't get to partake in the glory after suffering. So listen, in the same way that there is a partaker, partaking of the sufferings of Jesus, there is also a partaking of the resurrection glory of Jesus. Jesus died on a cross, but he didn't stay dead, amen? He is alive. Jesus overcame suffering. He defeated sin, death, and the devil once and for all, and he is alive. And if we are partakers of his suffering then this means, Christians, that we are also partakers of his resurrection glory. Hallelujah. So those who have died in Jesus and for Jesus, they they didn't really die. Their death was gain, as Paul would say, because of the eternal life and glory that they've now received. So an expectant believer can rejoice in the midst of suffering because they know with confident hope that there is a promised glory ahead. You can rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light and momentary affliction. Like, okay, Paul, let's see, you were shipwrecked, you were beaten and left for dead, You were stranded at sea, like bitten by snakes, beheaded at the end of your life. For this light momentary affliction, 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, so far we've seen that a follower of Jesus can, in verse 12, expect suffering. In verse 13, we see that we can rejoice in suffering. And next we'll see that a Christian will be empowered in suffering. And we see that in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You know, Peter had to get this thinking from somewhere, right? Where did, where did he get this idea from? Well, this is what Jesus said when he taught his great message on the kingdom of God called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the section that is known as the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12, these are the words of Jesus to his disciples. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what Peter is doing here is he's simply reiterating the promise of blessing for those who are insulted for the name of Jesus. But there's something here that Peter says about the power to do this. Because again, this, this ain't something that's going to come from within ourselves. Peter knew from his past how he had tried to accomplish the will of God by his own strength and power. Peter was a man of, of great strength, of great leadership, of great ideas. But when he came to the point where he discovered, wait a minute, I can't do this by my own power. I need a power that is outside of myself if I'm actually going to live a faithful and fruitful life for Jesus. And this power we're talking about is none other than the power of the Holy Spirit. And this power came upon Peter at Pentecost and we see this great dynamic power that took place in Peter's life when he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you don't know what the baptism with the Holy Spirit is, you're going to have to come the second week of our series on the Holy Spirit. And this power that came upon Peter at Pentecost was seen in a great dynamic work that took place in Peter's life. It, it, it happened where after denying Jesus to a 12-year-old girl, he, he stood in front of thousands and proclaimed the name of Jesus that he had been crucified and risen from the dead. And that very first message Peter preached, 3,000 souls were added to the church. See, having the Holy Spirit upon you is the only way that you will be able to suffer supernaturally. And to suffer supernaturally is to rejoice in suffering because his glory makes you glad. So Peter came to understand, right, what Jesus meant when he said these words in Luke chapter 12, verse 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That has nothing to do about how I just get up and, you know, preach and the Holy Spirit is just going to give me the words. It's in those moments where you've got like, you've got like a knife to your neck. Deny Jesus. And he said, I will not deny Christ. 
The Holy Spirit comes upon those, for instance, those martyrs that I've spoken about who were burned at the stake for following Jesus and for trying to get his word into the hands of every person. And it's why the testimonies of these martyrs, you hear about how they're being burned alive and singing hymns in the fire. There's a dynamic empowerment that comes upon a person who is insulted for the name of Jesus. How the spirit of glory and of God comes and rests on you. It's like the Shekinah glory of God that comes upon a person. And church, we need this power, amen? We need this power. But we have to realize something. We have to realize that a suffering church is a refined church. And a refined church is an empowered church. It is why we see the persecuted church having such rapid growth and impact ever since the time of Acts. The Holy Spirit has to be the one to lead his church. And often the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us at times when we're in desperate need of him, at times when God is refining his bride, when he is allowing suffering to come upon his church by his sovereign hand and he's saying, yes, the heat's getting turned up, but I'm gonna pour out my spirit upon it so that you can withstand it and endure. So entrust your soul to me, church. Entrust your lives to me and I will give you the power to endure. And so we've thought so far about these things that we can expect suffering, that we can rejoice in suffering, that we can be blessed and empowered in suffering. And now we look at verse 15 through 16. Here we'll see that we have to suffer in a way that glorifies God. Verse 15 and 16 says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You guys all good? Everyone good? Not all suffering is equal in its reason and purpose. There's a big difference in suffering for the sake of unrighteousness and suffering for the sake of righteousness. Peter says, let none of you, that is, none of you beloved children of God suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or meddler. You know, before I was a Christian, uh, I was a thief. <laughs> uh, I, one time, not, not like a crazy thief, I just a couple things every once in a while. It all started in a grocery store in Redondo Beach when I stole a little pack of, you know those little tiny bite-sized gums? You know what I'm talking about? The little yellow pack? No, anyways. But one time I was at a beach bonfire um, and I stole an iPod from some other kid. And a few months later I was at this concert and I was so mad when someone broke into my friend's car and stole my iPod. (laughs) You know? And in those days, I just kind of chalked it up to karma, right? Just like, I guess I get what I deserve, right? But those were the BC days, you know, before Christ when I was a thief. But today, as a Christian, um, 
If you live a life of a murderer or a thief or an evildoer and you suffer because of it, there's nothing strange about that. That's to be expected. If you're suffering, Christian, because you're stealing, <laughs> yeah, of course you are. It doesn't also it doesn't receive the same rejoicing, the same blessing, the same empowerment that we've talked about when we're suffering for the sake of righteousness in the name of Jesus. That should be obvious. But what's interesting is there's one sin on this list that I find interesting that Peter mentioned in the same breath as murder, theft, and evil doing. He says, let none of you suffer as a meddler. <laughs> Some translations use the word busybody. <laughs> no, just kidding. But to be a meddler, this is challenging, you guys. To be a meddler or a busybody is to be consumed with everyone else's life and well-doing that you're not busy taking care of your own life and well-doing. It's the person who gets involved in everyone else's business, wanting to know the who's who and the what's what, and when your own life is a mess and you should probably focus on how your own life can be more refined, right? And Paul's antidote to the busy body is to work hard with your hands. He told Timothy uh, in his pastoral epistles to have the younger women not be put on the distribution list for food, but to have them work. Because if they weren't working, then they were idle, and if they were idle, then they would be tempted to be busybodies. The environment for meddling is idleness, laziness. And so the antidote of being a meddler or a busybody is shared in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. Aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So that's just like a little kind of side, little side part thing that maybe just refines us a little bit more not to be meddlers. But the way that meddling finds its place among the murderer and the thief and the evildoer is that they all destroy by taking what is not yours to take. That's what meddling is. is you're just taking what is not yours to take. So let no one suffer for those reasons which have no purpose. But listen, there's a way to suffer that has reason and purpose, and that's in verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You know, this is one of the few times that that name Christian is used actually in the New Testament. It's not used that often, Christian. That name was first used in Antioch. Uh, in Acts eleven twenty six. 26, we find out that the disciples were called Christians first there at Antioch. And did you know that the name Christian, that it started as an insulting name? It was a way to insult those early Christians. And so early on, Christians were called the way or people of the way. Sometimes they were called Nazarites because they followed Jesus of Nazareth. And, but eventually, you know, they were being called Christians. And it was sort of a mockery, a ridicule, an insult. But eventually that name stuck. And today, probably one of the most common ways we've referred to people who follow Jesus is that word Christian. But we have to think about that. It started as an insult. In the 1960s, during the Jesus movement, 
which Calvary Chapel was birthed out of, um, Christians were called Jesus freaks. Did anyone ever get called a Jesus freak in here? Yeah. It started as an insult, but then it became something that was adopted or redeemed in a certain kind of way. That what starts as insults to Christians ends up sticking in Christianity. There's something just so unique about that. Just shows how Christians can suffer well. But that name Christian is a really special name, and in, in some ways I think people have tried to move away from it. They would want to go back to maybe using something like the way because it sounds kind of cool. And it's like part of the response, I think, to that is that people are kind of frustrated with how that name Christian has been used and yet it's not represented well by a life of love and a testimony of truth. And so if you take that name Christian, live as one. It was Gandhi, I think you said, I don't think it was entirely a fair thing to say, but he said it. He said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Like that stings from like Gandhi. (laughs) But, and again, I'm not saying it's true, but there was something recognized that we must take responsibility as Christians to live in a way that glorifies God, to live in a way that actually looks like Jesus. But I want us to see again that suffering is closely linked to being a Christian. And although there's some who might cast shame on you for being called a Christian, and there are those who would want to tear you apart for any fault. Like you mess up in the littlest kind of, I thought you were a Christian. It's like, that's not fair, that's not right, because, and a lot of that is that they don't understand that as Christians we live under the grace of God, we live in the love of Jesus, and Jesus does not condemn us even when we fall short. But Christian, let that name hit in a fresh way for you today. You're a Christian. You're a Christian, like let that hit you in a fresh way to understand what that actually means. So this has been a lot, right? We've, we've covered a lot of ground. I want to look at this final verse and what we've heard today. Again, I don't think ever in the moment suffering or even hearing about suffering comes in sort of a pleasurable kind of way. But to know what is on the other end of it, to know what Christ is bringing us through into his glory. Look at verse 17 through 18. For this is time It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So there's purpose in suffering. We've learned that today. I believe, I hope you better understand that when you suffer, God has purpose and reason, especially if you're suffering for the sake of his name. God is refining his church. And the purpose of judgment is what he's talking about here. And in context, that word judgment comes in the form of persecution for living a righteous life in Jesus. The purpose is in judgment or suffering is to purify the church so that it will be able to be an effective witness to a lost and dying world. 
the judgment of God which comes upon his church, which is that, that sense that we all agree, if you're really seeking to follow Jesus, this isn't easy, this is hard, this can be difficult, this can be a real challenge. The trials and the testings that we endure through with Jesus, it's an expression of his love and refinement. It's not an expression of his wrath. See, the judgment that's talked about that comes upon the household of God is not punishment for sin. If you think, Christian, that you are suffering right now because you sinned and God is punishing you for your sin, you are wrong. The Bible does not teach that. You do not get punished for your sins by God making you suffer. Jesus suffered on the cross once and for all for sin. Punishment was removed at the cross. Condemnation was moved, removed at the cross. What is left for us when we suffer is only purification. It's only refining. There's no wrath. There is no anger. There is no uh, punishment in our suffering, Christians. It is for our refining because this is what Peter is saying. Listen very carefully very carefully to what I'm about to say. The household of God, the church, goes through purifying fires now to be spared from the punishing fires later. Christians, now is our time of fiery trial. The ungodly and the sinner, they will have their fire later. Now is our time. And I would rather be purified now by fire, then punished with fire later. That's why I've turned to Jesus. It's why I've partaken of his suffering so that I may also partake in his glory. And if judgment begins with us, church, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so sure, as the AC turned off and it just got really quiet, (laughs) The Christian life may not be attractive to some because of the cost that is associated with it. And if you're following Jesus, you know that there's been a cost. But the cost that will need to be paid after this life is far greater than any cost we pay now. Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, for what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Jim Elliott, who was a well-known missionary who was martyred in Ecuador, said it like this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Suffering for Jesus in this life has no comparison to the sufferings of hell for those who reject Jesus and his offer of love and grace. This is the word of God. This is the truth that has been declared in love and with an abundance of grace so that we would think soberly in this time about how we ought to live. If the saved suffer now for doing good, what will the unsaved suffer in eternity for their unrighteous deeds? The saved suffer a merciful kind of judgment now, but the unsaved will stand before God in judgment that has no mercy.
And in the same way that any suffering for the believer now is light and momentary to the coming glory, the same is true that any judgment now for the believer is light and momentary compared to the coming judgment that will come upon the ungodly and upon the sinners. So it helps us, right, church, to see our suffering in the context of God's judgments. For those who obey Jesus, this is a comfort. For those who do not obey Jesus, this ought to be a terror. (laughs) Do you obey Jesus? Do you? I've loved you enough today to tell you the truth about suffering. That if you partake now, you'll partake in the glory later. And notice Peter doesn't say there anything about those who believe the gospel or agree with the gospel or tip their hat to the gospel. He says, those who do not obey the gospel will have an even worse outcome. Obeying the gospel of Jesus is not only to agree with the teachings of Jesus, it starts there, but to obey the gospel is to live out the teachings of Jesus. See, the demons believe the gospel and they tremble. Are we obeying the gospel? Matthew 7, 13 through 14, enter by the narrow gates. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Friends, are you in the way of Jesus? That's the question today. Are you a Christian on the path of Christ obeying his gospel? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray over this group of people here today that Lord you see and you know everything about them I've been challenged Lord I believe you've been taking us through 1 Peter chapter 4 for a very specific purpose in this specific church because I believe that you're doing something. Your love is never stagnant. You are always doing something. And God, I believe you're stirring something up in this community because you're stirring something up in these people. And I believe that revival begins with judgment upon the church. Revival begins with judgment upon the church. When the church gets serious about obeying the gospel, when the church will suffer for the name of Jesus Consider that an honor to do. We'll be called Jesus freaks. Christians insulted for how serious we take the claims of Christ and how we live them out. And it's when the church starts living in a way that is obedient to the gospel that a watching and dying world sees. And revival is not so much the expansion of the church through evangelism but the expansion of the church through the the church itself being revived being awakened and so awaken your church today lord awaken my own heart convict me of my own sin and lead me toward greater holiness jesus and as we're praying i want to give the invitation that if you're here today and you've heard the claims of jesus you want to take serious those claims and you want to say, I, I want to be on this way. I want to be on this path. Yeah, it sounds difficult, but man, it sounds worthy. 
you're ready to consider the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. I, I'm not going to tell you, come to Jesus and your life is going to be all easy and cotton candy and unicorns. But if you're here today and you want to suffer well in this world, you want to go to an eternal life in heaven that is glory with Jesus, and you don't know with confidence, a confident hope that you believe that you have been forgiven of your sins. And today you want to say, I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to receive the new life that is found only in Jesus. And if that's you today, and God by his Holy Spirit is coming upon you and stirring that conviction up, and you want to say, I'm ready to follow Jesus. Would you just raise your hands? I see you right here. Praise the Lord. I see you guys right down here. I see you right back there. Praise God. Amen. So beautiful to see those hands go up and to say, we're going to do in church. We're here together. We stand together and saying, we are in this, Lord. Holy Spirit, fall upon this church. Come, Holy Spirit, fall upon us that we may live out this gospel, this good news. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.